and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all of his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me. This is the word of the Lord. Are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen.
So we continue this morning our studies in the book of Exodus and we come to the first great climax of the book in chapters 11 and 12 where we observe four things, sin, judgment, deliverance and memorial. Sin. Yes, but whose sins? Not Israel's, but Egypt's. Whatever the Jewish Passover is about, it is certainly not about the forgiveness of Israel's sins. The sins in view here are the sins of Pharaoh and the Egyptians against Israel. During their 400 plus years in Egypt, the people of Israel had multiplied exponentially. And how did Egypt react to this explosive increase? With fear and suspicion with hostility and craftiness, with exploitation and oppression, with cruelty, and finally with infanticide. They set out to murder all the newborn Israelite boys. Pharaoh had led his people in the hardening of their hearts, turning them into downright racists. They sinned shamefully and shamelessly against Israel. They sinned blatantly and dangerously against Israel's God. This has implications for our own self-understanding. The church is constantly telling us that we are all sinners who need to repent and get right with God through Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And of course, that message is absolutely right and true and fundamental. But is it the whole truth? No, no. For the fact is that not only are we all sinners, but also, like Israel, we are also all victims of other people's sins. Abuse, exploitation, and slavery are just as alive and kicking in today's world as they were of old. And I make bold to suggest that there is not one person here this morning who has not been injured one way or another, in childhood or adolescence, in adult life, by some more dominant and powerful person serving their own agenda and leaving us with wounds and scars which last a lifetime. Isn't this exactly why our Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to pray not only forgive us our sins, but also as we forgive those who sin against us? Perhaps sometimes we pray that rather too glibly. It can be very, very hard to do, but we do need to keep it in mind for the sake of our own self-awareness of what our experiences have done to us and made us into and left us to struggle with. Second thing in the passage is judgment. As we all know, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. <laughs> and of course, there are many valid ways of dividing them up. One quite simple way runs like this. The first two chapters tell us that God created a universe which was all very good. The next nine chapters tell us that God's world rebelled against him and so got us into the mess we find ourselves in today. And then the remaining 1178 chapters tell us what God is doing about it. Some people, sadly, will say he is doing nothing at all. 
They famously see God as the celestial watchmaker who created the old clockwork pocket watch, wound it up and set it going, and then lost interest and left it to carry on all by itself. If we're honest, perhaps we've all had thoughts a bit like that sometimes. Even in the Bible, some of the Psalms recognize this experience. Psalm 77, for instance. Please do read it for yourself later. And I guess that it might have felt a bit like this for Israel in Egypt about the time that Moses was born. But is that the whole story? Again, no, no, no. On the contrary, the whole procession of patriarchs, prophets, Jesus himself, apostles, martyrs, theologians, evangelists, and songwriters, all together massively proclaim that God has not lost interest. God does take notice. God does care. God is active in his own created but rebellious world. In a phrase which deserves to be much better known, God has been described as the celestial interferer. Sometimes his interfering is very dramatic, at other times rather more discreet. But the book of Exodus records a period of very dramatic interference. Yet observe how gently and mercifully God deals with the Egyptians. First, we have the announcement to Pharaoh of God's immediate purpose and the invitation to cooperate, let my people go, etc. Then we have numerous verbal warnings of the consequences of non-compliance. Then we have the plagues as signs of where resistance will lead to. And only after all this does God enact the ultimate demonstration of his sovereignty in the death of all the Egyptian firstborn males. And even then, the judgment is still only partial. As Neil pointed out to us last week, it could so easily have been the whole lot of the Egyptians. But even in judgment, God is merciful. And this limited 10th plague is enough, at least for the moment, to break through Pharaoh's hardness of heart. So then, since God is always actively interfering in judgment in his own created world, we need to he hear and heed Paul's words when he writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. End quote. Part of our faith, then, is to wait patiently for God to bring judgment and justice in his own time and manner, knowing as we do that bring it he surely will. If only that had been remembered before the vengeful bombing of Dresden 75 years ago. Third thing in the text is deliverance. Deliverance. It's a rich, warm, welcoming sort of word, isn't it? Some synonyms might be rescue, release, redemption, liberation, setting free, safeguarding, salvation. In considering God's deliverance of Israel, let's look firstly at the historical event itself, and then secondly, at the prophetic significance of the event. In the original event, the Israelites were delivered from the angel of death abroad that night, and from the life of slavery, which had gone on for many years. 
They were delivered so that they could worship and serve Yahweh, the only true God, rather than Pharaoh and his idols, and to pursue Israel's vocation to make Yahweh known to the world. They were delivered by the shed blood of the Lamb and by their faith and obedience in painting that blood on the doorposts and lintels of their houses and staying inside and until the danger had passed over. And all this had deep prophetic significance. Our wonderful, incomparable Lord Jesus Christ, fully in control of his own destiny, deliberately went up to Jerusalem and allowed himself to be crucified at Passover time. John the Baptist had already called Jesus the Lamb of God. Paul the Apostle would later write, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. He, Jesus then, is the ultimate deliverer, liberator, releaser, rescuer, safeguarder, saviour, and the one who sets us free. Free from what? Well, Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil, and evil takes many forms. We might sum them up as sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Whoever commits sin, said Jesus, is a slave to sin, and if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Notice he is not talking here about the guilt of sin, but rather about the ingrained habits of sin to which we're in bondage, those habits which constrict and confine us all until he sets us free. Our true enslaving gang masters are not other human beings like the Egyptians, no, along with sin, they are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, not the world God loved, but in this case, things such as the incessant quest for money and possessions, for fame and influence and power. The flesh, not the human body as such, but the whole range from overindulgence of natural appetites, narcissism, all the way to the opposites of self-loathing, self-abuse, and self-harming. The devil, no fictional personalization of badness, but a living and active liar, leading his victims astray into dead ends like scientific materialism, pseudo-religions, terrorism, and occult practices. And so, dear friends, is it not a tragedy of our age that on the one hand, so many people feel trapped in bondages they cannot escape from, while on the other hand, many other people, like some Jews of old, do not even recognize that they are in fact slaves in need of liberation. Not, of course, liberation into an empty desert of nothingness, but transfer from one servitude of oppression to another master whose service is perfect freedom. Come to me, says Jesus, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, end quote. 
For those who will embrace it then by faith and baptism, this deliverance has been won for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. By steadfastly resisting all attempts of Satan and his forces to de deflect him from his Father's will, resisting even to the point of bloodshed, Jesus has conquered all evil powers forever and ever. Amen. Glory be to Jesus. O oh, come, let us adore him. And the fourth thing in the text is memorial. Annual memorials of significant events are a well-known and important feature of human life. Woe betide the husband who forgets his wedding anniversary. On a larger scale, every November the 11th, we British solemnly remember Armistice Day, even now after 102 years. Israel, similarly, were commanded by God to reenact the original Passover meal year by year on the 14th day of their month, Abib or Nisan. In their roller coaster history, this observance sometimes lapsed. But whenever they turned back to God, almost the first thing they did was to reinstate the Passover. And many faithful Jews still observe Passover today, well more than 3,000 years later. But for us Christians, someone greater than Moses has appeared. And just as circumcision has been succeeded by baptism as the sign and seal of initiation into membership of God's covenant people, so the Passover has been superseded by the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion, the Eucharist. Not now as an annual festival, but to be repeated as often as discretion would suggest. Our Catholic friends will tell us that the high point of the service is when the priest says the prayer of consecration and the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. Let's unambiguously protest. They have got that absolutely wrong. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he was referring not to the blessing of the bread and wine, but to the eating and drinking of them as a communal activity to be shared in by each individual in turn. Now here, I must proceed very gently because I feel duty bound to appeal, some of us who, to, appeal to some of us who are present here this morning. If you are a believer and baptized and yet do not come forward to receive the bread and the wine offered, I want to ask you to think deeply and to reconsider your position. After all, our Lord Jesus did not say, watch this in remembrance of me. He said, do it. Whether we take that as an invitation or as a command, it comes from the very lips of our Saviour himself. If you then have not as yet responded to his words, please allow me to encourage you to do so and to continue doing so on a regular basis until, as Paul puts it, he, Jesus, comes. This is an important part of Christian discipleship, more, no doubt, than just a memorial, but certainly not less. So please, do not leave Jesus disappointed by your reluctance. 
To sum up then, we all, as victims of other people's sins, can safely leave God to deal with those people, while we ourselves, meanwhile, take up our share in the freedom from all bondages as won for us by our Lord Jesus Christ, and as celebrated by us and communicated to us as we eat the bread and drink the wine in thankful response to our Lord who said, do this in remembrance of me. Amen. <laughs>